Welcome to the Dover Download Podcast, your weekly look at what's going on in Dover, what's going in in Dover, and all things Dover-related. My name is Chris Parker, and I'm the Deputy City Manager here in Dover, and I'm going to walk you through all of that, plus more. We all know that the city can do whatever it wants. Wait, is that really true? We're going to find out today with City Attorney Josh Wyatt about what constraints the city council, the city staff, and community at large have as far as doing whatever it wants to do. Josh, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Chris? Good. I always like to start with a little background. So if you could tell the listener how long you've been with the city, how long you've been practicing, I assume, as an attorney, and anything else that you're willing to share about your background. Uh, sure. Yeah. So I've been with the city just over three years. Uh, I am a licensed attorney. <laughs> it's a job qualification. Uh, I worked for a private firm in New Hampshire for about 10 years before I came here. And I worked for the New Hampshire Supreme Court for one year before that. And prior to that, I went to what is now the UNH School of Law from 2005 to 2008. That's the short version from there to here. So you've been with the city for three years. Looking back now, is it what you thought you were going to be dealing with? Is it the is the material or the casework or however you would want to, the workload, uh, however you'd want to characterize it, what you assumed? Or is it truly unique in that regard of no day is the same? I guess what I would want listeners to know first is that it is a quite a lot more work than I thought and that maybe the average taxpayer thinks. I think it's true of any city employee here that we're very busy all day, every day. That said, I think What's been pleasant is that the days fly by because the work's interesting, You're typically solving problems, not worrying about generating money for a law firm. So it's been great to help solve those problems, help staff, help the city council, and indirectly help the public. You know, it's funny you use that term because that's tends to be, I think government is really two things. One is it's relationship building and the second is it's problem solving. And if you don't have the relationship building, you can't really solve the problems. So in, in my mind, it, it's a, uh, people think that public service is one thing, but it really is a much more complex animal at its root is how to creatively solve people's problems, whether it's how do I do X or how do we prevent Y? And, and to dive into how do we prevent Y for those that don't know, the city is is established through a charter, which in some ways is the constitution, correct, for the city? Yes, I think that's a that's a fair analogy. That is essentially the city's constitution. So the charter sort of lays out who governs, what they govern, where they govern. Is there any nuances in the charter that go really beyond that? And I'm not trying to minimize those th- those segments because those are pretty significant elements. But am I missing anything in, in what's contained within the charter? I would describe the charter as the first place that you go to see what the local voters have decided is the authority of city staff and city council and the subsidiary bodies. In the order of authority, I would say, you know, you go federal constitution, state constitution, state statute, city charter. And then below the city charter would be things like ordinances and other acts of the local body. So what can you tell us about our our current charter? Is it from 1920? Is it from 1885? When when was it? When were we established as a chartered community? The sh- the short 
history of the city's form of government and charter is essentially that it was actually the town of Dover for centuries until in 1855, there was a vote. They voted to become a city, the voters here. Um, my memory is that it was not um, a runaway vote. I think it was fairly close the last time I looked at that vote tally. And then after that, the city of Dover's charter became a function of state statute. So the legislature in Concord would and it would do this with other cities um, in the state, would pass Dover's charter. And if Dover needed an amendment, it needed to go to the state to pass a new bill. That continued until in the 1960s, the state passed a new statute generally that allowed charters to, to become more of a function of local control if the voters wanted that. And that is the current system. I think somewhere in the 70s, maybe around 1977, voters here elected to have a local charter. And the way that currently functions and has functioned since that is that voters have control over what's in the charter, but within certain constraints. So there is a statute that prescribes what your charter can address. And voters, typically a commission here, will draft something, a charter or an amendment, um, although the city council cannot do amendments. That will go to be reviewed by three state agencies. And then if they approve it, it'll go to voters. So right now, this essentially the local voters control the content of the charter, though the state is still supervising it at some level. As I said earlier, my understanding is part of what the charter does is it, it lays out the form of government. So here we have a council manager form of government. Other communities charters might lay out a strong mayor form of government, or there are some hybrids out there. But the charter also, it's where the ward boundaries used to be listed. And, and this year, we actually changed that over the past year. What was that process like? And I'm using that as an example of how the charter can be amended at the local level. Right. So um, the Historically, our our voting wards had been a function of the charter. So every 10 years when the census came out, we would have city staff take a look at redrawing the boundaries and in collaboration with other elected officials. And to change those boundaries, you would have to redraw them, take them to the three state agencies, have them approve those, and then they would go to voters. And it was a long process. It was a six-month to one-year process to change boundaries. Because of the pandemic, the federal census was delayed and the timing stacked up so that if we were to go through the normal process of amending the city's charter, uh, we would run out of time before elections were happening this year and candidates could file and this year being 2022. So it was recommended and ultimately passed to have the voting boundaries become a function of city charter that the city council can draw. However, they cannot draw it except every 10 years when they get the census results. So it is not as if they can tinker with them every two years. What they could do is put them back on the charter. But right now, the city council is, is controlling the ward boundaries. There's other things I want to I connect with you on, but uh, to wrap up the charter conversation... The last, I think, important part of the charter that we haven't covered yet is that there's a requirement, and I believe it's in the city code, not in the charter, that from time to time, the council create a charter commission, which then looks at the charter. What is that process like? I know you haven't been involved with one, but uh, what's your understanding uh, for the listener of what that process might be like? So, right. In our charter, there is a fairly unique provision that requires that the city council ask itself the question every 10 years, I believe should a charter commission be created? Should it answer yes, 
there is a series of statutory prescriptions. The, the, the process is highly prescribed by statute, how to create that commission, what that commission's powers are to review and revise the city's charter, and ultimately how to put that to voters. That is not the only way that that a charter commission can be created. I believe it can also be created by citizen petition. But I believe, if my memory is right, that the intent of that was really probably the same as the sentence. Every 10 years, ask ourselves the question, do we like how this is working? Is there a change needed? I was tangentially involved when there was a charter commission, maybe 2005-ish, I believe. And it was a fairly intense process. There was a lot of conversation, a lot of feedback, and a lot of what I'll call discovery. People asking questions, answers being provided, and then debate on those. Uh, it's a it's an involved process. There was an election uh, for those charter commission members. And it, it's something that, on the one hand, we don't want to take lightly. But on the other hand, when you do it, it is a very involved and invested process. So it really should stand out and it's good that it's set up to make us think and say, we should do this or we don't need to do this. Uh, but I, I think, as you say, it's, it's important to have the, the council pinged with that question and say, we're going to look at this. Are we comfortable with the way things are flowing and do we need to make change as a community looking at our, our constitution? Just to carry through with your your analogy to the Constitution, the Charter Commission is essentially like a constitutional convention, right? Yeah. Um, not unlike when they put together the state and the federal constitutions, and the state has had those uh, more recently than the federal government, but it is a very serious, solemn exercise of policymaking. Carrying it forward a little, I started in the, the introduction talking about we can do whatever we want to do, right? And uh, there's an important uh, distinction, I think, that some people understand and other people hear, but don't necessarily dig down into. And that is the difference between a home rule state and a Dillon's rule state. And we're a Dillon's rule state. My understanding is the distinction is home rule says we, the city of Dover, have been created and everything within the boundaries is, is subject to the city council's decision makings versus a Dillon's rule, which says you can make decisions, but only on things that the, the state has enabled you to make decisions on. For instance, the city cannot say, and this is a, uh, I'll use an example that would probably never happen, but um, the city can't say we're going to charge a sales tax. Uh, within the, the municipal boundaries because the state has not said you could do this versus in other states across the nation, there is some of that flexibility. Am I explaining that right or am I missing something there? Nope, 100% right. Folks often hear about, for example, New York City or San Francisco amending its employment laws or changing, um, you know, creating protections for family leave or something like that. In New Hampshire, we don't have the autonomy or the independence at the local level to legislate very much, frankly. It's not to say it's nothing, but it's it's really carefully constrained by the legislature what they want local communities to have local control over. And it's not the general police powers that the state has. It's kind of ironic that for a state that talks about living free, we don't truly have the independence that people might otherwise envision based on those constraints. And, and I'm not saying those constraints are good or bad. I'm just, it's a, it's just an observation. I, I know uh, the last time it seemed to come up regionally was when a few communities in our area wanted to ban plastic bags. Uh, and that was determined to be something that you could not justify based on state labeling legislation. 
I hear it from time to time regarding rent controls or why can't we force people to build X or Y or why can't we say, and this is one that that has somewhat gone away, but I, I heard a lot about 10 years ago of we have too many restaurants in the city. We, we should say we don't want, you can't build a restaurant or you have to get a, we only allow a certain amount of licensed restaurants. Uh, and that's something that, that we're precluded from doing. You must hear stuff like that as well. Yes. Uh, whenever there's a question of policymaking, the, really the first question is what's our authority? Let's identify it and make sure we're acting within it before we and create some new local policy or rule or law. One topical thing and, and is, you know, recently the mask face covering mandates during the pandemic, certain communities enacted those Dover never did and were challenged on whether they had the authority to do that. And so there are several published judicial opinions now fairly long touring through the arguments about whether these statutes or those allowed the face coverings. I want to switch gears for a little bit here and talk about the office of the city attorney years ago. And it's probably 20 years ago, really. Uh, I remember going to George Wattendorf, who was the city attorney at the time, and saying, hey, I'm having an issue with my landlord and uh, I want to invoke some tenant rights. And his response was, great, you should find an attorney that can help represent you because I can't <laughs> represent you, that I am the city's attorney, not the community, is not the resident's attorney. I am here for the municipal corporation. Uh, and it's something that sort of resonated with me. And it's, it's weird in the sense I can see why people, including myself, 20 years ago, thought that the name implied more than it really does. Am I, is that a one-time instance or do you, you get that from time to time yourself? Uh, it happens. It probably happens less frequently now than, than maybe back then. But sometimes people do reach out with a personal problem and, and we do remind them that there are ethical constraints on my ability to provide any advice to personal citizens. That being said, I mean, there are other places we can direct them to find uh, an attorney from the bar or from New Hampshire Legal Assistance. But yes, it happens. And, um, and it's not a stretch. When, I, when I'm asked uh, for legal advice, I tend to ask myself the question, well, I, I do, what is in the city's best interest? What is in the municipal corp corporation's best interest? Now, all that said, it is also the case that that I believe indirectly benefits all the citizens because the municipal corporation should be acting in their interests. Right. Um, and should remain a neutral party. Right. It is a governmental entity. It is bound to uphold the state and the federal constitution and all the bills of rights uh, for both the federal and state constitutions. So in your office, which is yourself and the deputy city attorney and a paralegal, what do you find are the most common things? Is the most common thing keeping me out of trouble or are there, uh, are there other activities that are taking up your time? Hopefully it's, that's the case. Uh, that's difficult to answer. Um, we spend a lot of time, I think, in emphasis on making sure, and this is not to suggest people are in compliance, but compliance related uh, research and inquiries. They could range from, you know, what's my authority to do X or, um, you know, what is my ability to provide this information that someone's asked or the public's asked. And so we're trying to make sure that the city is operating within all the boundaries, the various overlays, and there are quite a lot of them 
um, state constitutions, state statutes, state agencies, federal constitution, federal statutes, federal agencies. There's multi-layer sitting on top of the city government's decisions. And so we help navigate that. I think that's predominantly what we do, although there are various other things that we help with as well. I, I like to tell new especially department heads, but new employees too, that when three people speak, I listen more intently. The first is the city attorney. The second is the purchasing agent. And the third is the HR director, because all three are geared towards protecting the municipal corporation from making a decision that might be impactful in a negative way, even if you don't intend it to be that way, even if it's an unintentional oops. All three of you are looking at things from a multifaceted frame of reference to say, okay, I understand why you want to make that decision or why you think you can make that decision, but here is a consequence. Have you thought about that action? Right, right. And I guess I'd, I'd, I'd also want folks to know in our office, we don't really engage in policymaking. Um, it's important to understand. So my client is the city. The city defines its own goals. My job, as I understand it, is really just to make sure it accomplishes those goals in an efficacious and compliant manner. Folks may think that I am making some decision on for them, and I am I am typically not. I am typically helping other folks make the decision that they want to make in a compliant fashion. So you're a guiding hand as opposed to the author. Correct. I am a resource. You're the editor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really appreciate a lot of what you you do and. One of the things that I have been impressed with over the past three years, which in my mind really was five years, I was a little surprised when you just said three. You are a very creative individual and you are a very, very intelligent individual. And I, I very much appreciate the impact you've had on some of the decision making and some of the thoughts and creative ideas that we've had. I like the fact that you are not opposed to saying to me, well, that sounds good, but um, as opposed to letting me go out and hang myself. And I, I really want to just say thank you for providing that that steady hand and uh, the demeanor with which you bring to the office of let's evaluate that, let's consider that, but then let's make the informed correct decision, even if it might not be the decision that pragmatically sounds like the great decision. Oh, thank you. I, as a personal weakness, I, I, I'm bad at taking compliments, so thank you. <laughs> um, I will say it, it's easy. I'm not going to say other communities in New Hampshire aren't like this, but it's 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 extremely easy and rewarding here in Dover because people here uniformly want to make the right decision. So it makes um, getting there more than half the fun. Well, <laughs> and rewarding and and but yeah, I mean, I I think that's a function of it's a reflection of the culture here. Yeah, you know, I remember when when you interviewed for the role and. You were not the only candidate. The different perspective that people could bring to the city attorney role, the um, I can't wait to litigate perspective or the we should do everything we can to not get litigation in front of us. And uh, that's the culture we have had here. Of Again, your role is to protect us from uh, being in those missteps because uh, truly litigation is a misstep in, in a lot of ways. So I, I think that uh, you're right. The culture here is is very attuned to the let's make the right decision. Let's make an educated decision and let's put the community's interest, no matter what that decision is, make the community's interest the primary driving response to that. It shouldn't be reactionary. It should be proactive of what's in the best interest for the community. I agree. I mean, sometimes litigation is un unavoidable. And when that's the case, we prosecute our claim or defense to the fullest extent and best to avoid it if you can. 
if you need court, it's there. It's a conflict resolution mechanism. But yeah. let's find a way for a win-win solution where the public or the person or the applicant, whoever it may be, mm -hmm. and the city can make the right decision and everyone's interest is met. I, I will say, and we'll sort of wrap up on this, uh, that um, having seen Bulldog Josh in uh, in litigation, it is fun to see that side of you as opposed to the, hey, have you thought about doing it this way? That's nice that you want to be creative, but versus the in the court, well, Your Honor, this is why we did X, Y, and here's all the backup and here's why. So it, it's fun to see both sides of you in that that regard. Before I let you go, the final question we tend to ask guests on the podcast is if you could give us three things, it can be people, items, activities, the culture, what have you, uh, that you think makes Dover stand out or makes Dover Dover or however you want to word that in your mind, but three things that uh, you think the, the listening audience should know about the community or uh, your involvement within it. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is, I mean, people are just so friendly here. Um, that's it's, it's a pleasure, you know, coming into work and, and just interacting with not just the people I work with, but the public. And I mean that people are, are exceedingly friendly here. Like I've mentioned, I guess number two would be, I think that the city government here really stands out as having a, a culture of trying to do everything possible to do right by its citizens and get value for its taxpayers and avoid things that, that would impair value. And, and third, I mean, I, I think what's and this is a continuation of that. And it's a credit to you, Chris, in large part and, and to the city staff um, and the developers here and the public who are going through some growing pains. But I, I mean, it's pretty interesting to watch and be a part of Dover having its economic expansion right now that it's having things like the waterfront development. I'm not saying that makes Dover Dover. Um, Dover was Dover a long time ago, and it's very interesting to read some of the old uh, city council reports and see things that are still the same uh, that make it what it is. But it is uh, evolving and growing, um, although I understand maybe not everyone appreciates that growth, but it is an interesting fact of modern life here. I remember uh, an instance uh, that brings that last comment to mind, um, or that your last comment brings to mind. in two thousand. Two, we were doing some some pretty significant rezoning to increase commercial capacity. And I think the council rep to the planning board was Parks Christianberry, who was on the council for a while, on the planning board for a while. And he made a very strong statement in favor of commercial and expansion in the zoning by pointing out that when the the, the city seal starts with industry as the the main, uh, the, the first element, there's industry, there's agriculture, uh, and that at the time when that seal was developed, there was a back and forth even then about were we an agrarian community? Were we a uh, sort of more rural or were we an urban industrial uh, community? And that, that the two need to balance and that that same comment you could hear today. Uh, we have too much industry. We have too much. And I go back to, to parks uh, really pushing that in order to continue to evolve. We needed economic growth and we needed economic diversity uh, by continuing to support that commercial growth. So it's funny to hear you say that that's that's uh, something that's still around. 20 years isn't that long a time, I suppose, in the grand scheme, especially when we're about to turn 400 as a uh, established place. So I appreciate you coming in and uh, speaking to the listeners today. It's always a pleasure, and I'm sure we'll find other topics to bring you back to the table. Great. Thank you very much. With almost 400 years of history, Dover's got a lot to tell. Up next, Mike Gillis is going to walk us through what happened this week. 
On September 5, 1934, the General Sullivan Bridge opened to traffic, connecting Newington and Dover across Little Bay. The 1,528-foot bridge had been constructed at a cost of $1 million and under extreme conditions, including rapid and strong currents, cold and ice, and difficult weather and tidal waters. The General Sullivan Bridge was named after John Sullivan, a Revolutionary War general, former governor of New Hampshire, and a delegate to the Continental Congress. The bridge construction boasted a continuous arched truss with structural breaks at the piers, a design that would significantly contribute to the nation's advancement of bridge technology. This new type of bridge was modeled after the Lake Champlain Bridge and for many years would be only one of four major U.S. bridges of its type in style. During its first 15 years, the General Sullivan Bridge operated as a toll bridge until November of 1949. As one of the state's first water crossings, the bridge opened up new routes for motorists and in 1956 linked up the newly constructed Spalding Turnpike. As traffic increased and began to strain the bridge's capacity, another bridge over Little Bay was constructed, opening in 1966. This new bridge, along with the General Sullivan Bridge, came to be known as the Little Bay Bridges. When the aging General Sullivan Bridge was eventually closed to vehicular traffic in 1984, it became a popular bicycle and pedestrian crossing, but access was restricted in 2010 and again in 2015 due to growing structural concerns. A parallel pedestrian bridge was constructed in 2011. The Little Bay Bridges now consist of the Captain John F. Rowe Bridge, which had opened in 1966 and was expanded in 1984. An additional Little Bay Bridge, the Ruth L. Griffin Bridge, was completed in 2013. The General Sullivan Bridge closed to all cyclists and pedestrians in September 2018 because of unsafe conditions. New Hampshire's Department of Transportation is in the process of designing a replacement bridge for the shuttered General Sullivan. The replacement bridge would consist of a 16-foot-wide pedestrian and bicycle path requiring a new steel girder and superstructure, but reusing the existing piers in the water. The cost of the project, last estimated in 2018, was $28.5 million. Thanks for listening to the Dover Download this week. If you like what you heard, subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator. And if you have something you want to hear a topic on, let us know. Finally, this is just one of the many ways we share information about the city of Dover. You can subscribe to the Dover Download's email newsletter every week or other newsletters that we have by going to the City of Dover homepage, www.dover.nh.gov. Have a great week. Have a great week.